This morning we begin a new series from the book of Kings, 1 Kings chapter 16. We'll be covering that section which pertains to Ahab and Elijah, uh, which is especially actually about uh, the importance of the Word of God. Let's open our scriptures uh, to page 379 in your pew Bibles, 1 Kings 16. 1 Kings 16, verse 29. Give ear to God's word. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. In his days, Hiel of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segeb, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, before whom I stand, There shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, help us to hear your word. Help us to receive it. Help us to believe it. O Lord, help us to keep it by your Spirit. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Today we read about a boy who became king. He built great cities and fine houses. He went to war and won many battles. He did great things, as kings usually do. And then he died and he was buried And the book of Kings tells us about many such great kings who did many such great things. And the question is, why? I don't really like history. If I'm being honest, I find it a little boring. And some of you know what I mean. It's all the memorizing of names and dates and places and people that made history not my favorite subject growing up. I was never good at memorizing so many seemingly random facts, 
and I don't really enjoy doing things that I'm not very good at. But when I became a Christian, I began to read history under a new and better light. There were still people and places and dates and events to memorize, but I noticed something new or at least something I hadn't seen before. History has a purpose. There is a beginning and an end, a start and a finish. History has a goal. It's not a circle. It's not even a bunch of disconnected dots. It's more like a line. The who, the when, the where, and the what are all connected by this all-important and significant why. History doesn't make much sense without the Bible. It's like reading a story, but there's no beginning and there's no end and all the pages have been torn out and you have a piece here and you have a piece there and you know there's something about a secret garden or a magical wardrobe or an all-powerful ring, but you can't make any sense of the story. It's all ruined and so you can't enjoy it at all. Why? Well, you don't really know why. History just seems to be pieces and parts without any purpose. It's a giant mess, and you can't do anything about it. You can't make any sense of it. You can't fix it. Maybe you feel like this in your own life. Where did I come from? What should I be doing? Why am I here? What's going to happen to me when I die? History can't really answer these questions. We know God's Word can and does. But what if I were to tell you that there is a holy, perfect, and loving God who has created this world? And what if I were to tell you that history is that moment-by-moment unfolding of the greatest story that you will ever hear? And that the Bible is God's record and explanation of this story's most important parts? Would you pay attention to every page, every paragraph, every word? Would you wake up early and and stay up late, your eyes pouring over every part, treasuring it in your heart? Why should you care about a king who lived a long time ago in a place far, far away, who did many great things and then died and was buried? Well, to begin with, God himself thought this part of the story was worth recording and preserving for his people. Some stories are just for fun. We, we read them because they make us laugh or smile. Some people read stories that make them cry or are afraid. I, I love personally reading fiction, and I'm sure many of you do too. But we all know these fictional stories, they aren't true. There are no toothy cows or talking fawns. There are no adventurous and curious hobbits. But God's Word, the Bible, is true. The history in it is true, and it was written for your instruction. On the whole, the Bible teaches what you are to believe about God and what your duty to Him is. It contains different kinds of literature. There are laws, there are letters, there are poems and proverbs and songs, and all of these in their own way teach us that there are only two ways to live. You can either live by God's Word or you can live against it. 
To live by God's word is to put your faith in him, to follow him, to obey him and all his commands. And to live against God's word is to reject his commands, to rebel against his will, and to put your faith in absolutely anything other than him. All of us, from the littlest of the children to the greatest of kings, live in one of these two ways. And so the book of Kings contains good kings, and it contains bad kings. And the question for us this morning is, what kind of king was King Ahab? This is the question we must ask. The historical historical facts about his reign that recorded us for, for us in verse 29, let me read them again. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. You see, fictional stories, they usually begin with once upon a time or a long, long time ago. But factual histories of kings, they usually begin with a date. And that is what we have here. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, refers to the regnal date, or the date of a king's ascension to his throne. When did Israel's new king begin to reign? It was in the 38th year of Asa's reign. And without belaboring the history and chronology of these things, that puts us at about 874 B.C., according to our Christian calendar. More interesting, perhaps, who is this king? Who is he? I've already mentioned his name, Ahab, but who is he? He is the son of Omri. It's repeated three times. He is the son of Omri. And Omri appeared earlier in the book of Kings. He is Ahab's father. And the Bible highlights especially for us that Omri was a mighty man. He was a soldier. He was a military commander. But he was not born a prince. And so he didn't inherit his father's throne. How then did he become king that his son should reign after him? Well, Jeroboam was the first king of Israel. When he died, Nadab, Nadab, his son, reigned in his place. But Baasha of the house of Issachar conspired against him and killed him. And Baasha reigned until he died, and Elah, his son, reigned in his place. But then Zimri conspired against Elah and killed him. And Zimri reigned all of seven days before he was burned alive and died in another conspiracy. Israel's history is one regicidal conspiracy after another. Well, eventually it came time for the people to pick a new king. And at least half the people of Israel picked Omri to be their king. He was their favorite. But the other half thought that somebody else should be king instead. So we have a tie. And in order to break the tie, what do they do? They they fight and they battle and they killed one another. It was a death match. Winner takes the crown. Eventually, Omri's people win the victory and the would-be king, his name was Tibni, died. I'm assuming not from natural causes. Then all the people gathered and crowned Omri as king. And this time, it was unanimous. And Omri reigned over Israel for 12 years. Again, he was a mighty man. He was a powerful man. He was a popular man. And it was probably for these reasons that he became king. 
But another thing you need to know about Omri is that he built the city called Samaria. He he bought the land and rebuilt the city and named it after the owner of the hill. And he made this city his royal city. He and his sons and hopefully his sons after his sons would rule over their kingdom in Israel in Samaria. Omri reigned in Samaria until he died and then he was buried and Ahab, his son, reigned in his place. But by far the most important thing you need to understand about Omri is that he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. In fact, he did more evil than all the kings that had come before him. It seems Omri was not a very good king. The Bible gives us an inspired evaluation and interpretation of the history of Omri's reign. And he went down as one of the worst and most wicked kings Israel had known to that point. By the way, that's not a title, not a trophy you want. Ahab, then, is the son of this Omri. He is the second of four kings in a royal dynasty that would last nearly 50 years. And as you might expect, Ahab was like his father in many ways. He was a chip off the old block. He was cut from the same cloth. He was cast from the same mold. He was an apple that did not far, fall far from the tree. Omri was powerful and popular. He was the builder of many great cities, and his own son was also. He inherited his father's strength. He reigned in his father's city. He built other great cities. And because of all of this, he was able to reign for 22 years. I mentioned earlier the king who reigned for seven days. 22 years is a pretty long time to be king in Israel with all the conspiracies going on. But there was one more way that Ahab was like his father. And it goes back to our question tonight, this this morning. Ahab was powerful. He was popular. He built many great cities. But was he a good king? And by what standard? What makes a good king good? Stated negatively, what makes a bad king bad? You know, in some ways, Ahab was actually a really great king. I think we tend to, we, we know how the story ends up going, most of us, if we've read the Bible, and we, we immediately think of Ahab as being a bad king. But the reality is, in many ways, Ahab was a great king. He, he strengthened the nation's borders. He conquered in battle. He won many impressive victories. He negotiated new trade deals and created new jobs. After years of civil war and economic recession, Ahab built back the nation better than it had ever been before. The fact that Ahab ascended his father's throne at all and that he reigned for 22 years testifies to the power and the stability and the success of his kingdom. And in no doubt, secular historians would look at a king like Ahab and all his accomplishments and they would say, there was a great king in Israel. The problem is that the book of Kings is not a secular history. It's not concerned with military or economic or political success. Rather, the book of Kings is is a type of religious history. It's concerned with what we might call spiritual success. And the standard by which kings are judged as being successful, as being either good or bad, is their conformity to God's word. Was Ahab 
a successful king by that standard. In verses 30 through 34, we find an inspired theological assessment of Ahab's reign. And it's not good, y'all. If Ahab was your son and he brought his report card back to you, you would look at his marks and he'd have a solid F minus. Look at verse 30. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. You will remember that that title formerly belonged to his father. But now it seems Ahab has won it for himself. How did he manage to excel in doing evil? How did Ahab become the the greatest of all time, worst and most wicked king in Israel? Well, we could start by blaming his family. With a father like Omri, did Ahab ever really have a chance? It doesn't ultimately excuse his sins, but certainly it contributed to it. Let me say this. This should be a warning to you fathers. Do not be surprised when your sons or your daughters grow up to be just like you. If you are living an unsanctified, ungodly, and evil life, the Lord has threatened to visit your sins upon your children. And we know that doesn't mean he will hold them guilty for your sins. What it means is he will let them learn to walk in them and be just like you. Children don't need to be taught sin. They are born in sin. Sin is in their nature, and so it comes naturally to them. But they do learn from their parents. And so you, you lose your temper, and suddenly they know a new word. You yell at your wife and disrespect her, and your sons and daughters will learn to do the same. You drink and you fight, and your sons will learn and see and do likewise. Fathers especially. There will be plenty of time in the book of Kings later to make application to wives with uh, the character of Jezebel. Uh, But for now, fathers, pay attention. Pay attention to your personal piety. If you are not practicing biblical repentance, start today. If you are not extending grace in the home, start today. If you are not seeking the Lord in private worship and leading your wife and your children in family worship, start today because your children are learning to be just like you. I should point out that Ahab's evil here is not sin in some generic sense. The the definite article is lost in our translation, but the original reads, the evil. And in the book of the Kings, the evil is always a definite reference to the forms and elements of public worship introduced by Israel's first king, Jeroboam. You see, when the kingdom was divided, Jeroboam, he made two golden calves, and he put one in Bethel, he put the other in Dan, In striking resemblance to Aaron's situation on Mount Sinai, he did so because he was afraid his people would fall away from him if he did not do something to keep them nearby. Now, Jeroboam's calf worship was political pragmatism gussied up as public convenience. He didn't intend to lead the people into full-blown idolatry. His calves were not new or different gods. They were merely visual representations of the same Elohim who brought Israel out of the land of Egypt. 
was clearly a violation of the second commandment, but it was not intended to be a violation of the first. He changed the elements and the forms of worship, but not the object of it. These details are important and will help us to understand the first part of verse 31. I'll read it again. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that's the calf worship, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. How did Ahab win the title for worst and most wicked king in Israel? Not by worshipping the true God falsely, but by marrying this woman. As if maintaining, propagating, and promoting Jeroboam's corrupted forms of worship wasn't wicked enough for Ahab, he goes and marries this Sidonian princess. And this is Ahab's first abomination. He, he marries Jezebel. And she is the daughter of Ethbaal. Her father is king of Sidon. Elsewhere he is called king of Tyre. Both Tyre and Sidon were wealthy city-states, port cities along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea, famous for purple cloth and other such wares, shipbuilding and sailing, significant economic wealth. And Ethbaal was king of both cities and the territories in between. But perhaps more importantly, Ethbaal, before he became king, was a priest to the fertility god Astarte. And Astarte was something of a wife, a consort to the Sidonian storm god Baal. And this means that Jezebel grew up as a PK, as a priest's kid. And then she became a princess before she finally became queen over Israel. And so she is passionate and devoted and powerfully religious. But she's a pagan. And Ahab took this woman to be his wife. And he did so despite the clear warnings and prohibitions of God's word. Exodus 34 clearly counsels against marrying the daughters of pagan peoples. Deuteronomy 7 explicitly commands against it, saying, you shall not intermarry with them, taking their daughters for your sons. Now, why does the Lord forbid his people from marrying these other people? Is God some sort of racist? Does he hate interracial or intercultural marriage? Of course not. The Lord is not racist, nor is he against these sorts of marriages per se. But he does expect his people to marry in the Lord. To believers, to worshipers of Yahweh. And his reasons for doing so are obvious. If you marry a pagan, an unbeliever, someone who worships false gods, you will almost certainly go and serve those gods yourself. And this is exactly what happens with Ahab. He, he grew up worshiping the Lord, albeit under the corrupt forms and ways of Jeroboam. But when he marries the Sidonian princess, he went and served Baal and worshiped him. And from this we learn two important lessons. And the first concerns public worship. Before Ahab went and worshipped Baal, he spent years publicly worshipping the true God falsely. And where did he learn to do that? 
He learned it again from his father, who walked in the corrupt traditions of Jeroboam. Fathers, it is your responsibility to teach your children how to worship the true God according to his word. You need to know what the Bible teaches about public worship. You need to join a church that practices what the Bible teaches. And you need to faithfully participate in the public worship of that church yourself. It's not enough to just send your wife and kids and let them sit in the pews while you're off doing something else. One of the worst things, though, you can do as a father is to take your children to a church that allows into its worship all sorts of man-made traditions. No, you should join a church that has simple, reverent, covenantal, God-centered, word-regulated worship led by ordained biological male ruling and teaching elders. Join a church where the word is preached, where the sacraments are administered properly, and teach your children to do the same. The Bible is very clear. Public worship is regulated by God's word. We are not free to do it however we feel. The second lesson, though, concerns marriage. And again, fathers, don't consent to your children marrying unbelievers. Don't pressure them to marry unbelievers just because they have good jobs and careers and are generally nice people. Parents, pray for your children that they would each find godly Christian spouses Teach them to make wise decisions about who they will marry. What are the standards? Proverbs 31, Psalms 1, Ephesians 5. All throughout the epistles, so many instructions about what to look for in a godly spouse. Teach your children to think in these things and in these terms. And finally, warn them about the dangers of marrying unbelievers. We need to understand why, and we need to teach our children to understand why as well. Why is it so bad? marry an unbeliever because you will follow after them that is what the bible says let me address the single people here directly young or not so young perhaps if you're marrying or remarrying think about doing so know that it is your duty to marry in the lord and to not be unequally yoked our confessional standards summarizing the teachings of the bible say that infidels roman catholics and other idolaters are not suitable options for Christian marriage. Neither are those who will live wicked lives or maintain damnable heresies. Some of you are perhaps aghast. The Roman Catholics were included in that. It's because they worship Mary and the saints. They are idolaters like the rest. They make a distinction without a difference by calling it veneration, but it is the same thing. And so you are not to marry them. Who you marry matters a lot. And by taking Jezebel, that Sidonian princess, to be his wife, Ahab secured an important alliance between the royal families of Israel and Sidon. The economic, the economic and the political advantages of their union would help to solidify Ahab's reign and bring wealth to his people. And from this perspective, Ahab married very well. But at what cost? He had sinned against God by marrying this unbelieving pagan princess. Well, fairy tales often end with a wedding. The king marries his princess, and then he rides off into the sunset or to his castle, and there they live happily ever after. But because Ahab has married an unbeliever, it will never and can never be so. 
In fact, Ahab's taking Jezebel to be his wife is the beginning, not the end. And it is the beginning of a horror story, not a fairy tale. Every abomination that Ahab will commit is the direct result of this sinister and unholy union. Having compromised his fidelity to God's teaching on marriage, he he falls headlong into every other sin imaginable. By refusing to live by God's Word in this one way, Ahab would become the worst and most wicked king in Israel. He went and served the Baal and worshipped him. But it wasn't enough for him to do so privately or with his wife alone. He wanted to do so publicly with the rest of Israel. And so he built the house to Baal and in there he erected an altar. He wanted all the people of Israel to be able to come and join with him to worship the almighty Baal. And Ahab made a wooden cult object called an Asherah for the worship of Astarte, I mentioned before, the companion, the consort of Baal. And like that, Samaria became the place where Israel worshipped. Not Bethel, not Dan, perhaps more significantly, not Jerusalem where they were supposed to be worshipping, but Samaria. Bulls and sheep and goats were burned in the city as the people begged for the blessings of Baal. The people prayed for rain and good harvest as they made grain and drink offerings, baking little cakes and pouring out wine. And then the babies were brought out and pressed against the burning bronze bull statues and burned alive, not to mention the cult prostitutes. It's worth noting that Baal worship bore some basic similarities to true worship. Often that is the case. You go to a church and sure, they've got pews and they've got a pulpit and perhaps there's even a Bible in that pulpit. But it's in the differences that we need to be careful and pay attention. Not what are they missing, but what do they add? Concerning child sacrifice and cult prostitution, the Bible is very clear. God had forbidden it in his word. He says, you shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. For every abominable thing that the Lord hates, they have done for their gods. For they even burn their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods. Deuteronomy 12, verse 31. Concerning cult prostitution, his word says, None of the daughters of Israel shall be a cult prostitute, and none of the sons of Israel shall be a cult prostitute. You shall bring the fee of a prostitute, for these are an abomination to the Lord your God. Deuteronomy 23, 17. The key word, abomination, abomination, abomination. And so in this way, false worship of the true God became false worship of the false gods. And Ahab led Israel in all these abominations because he would not heed God's word about marriage. By one unbiblical union, the whole nation was cast headlong into one awful sin after another. But at least they prospered. They were at peace. The economy was good. They had good jobs. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. He should have been an example. He should have been a guide to his people. He should have shown them and taught them 
how to worship the true God and how to live by His Word. But he didn't. And instead, he provoked the Lord to anger. You see, sin is not sinful because it harms you or your children or your neighbor. It does that. But the sinfulness of sin has everything to do with the fact that it is an offense against God. It is rebellion against Him. It violates His holy, his holy law. It offends His holy character. And for these reasons, sin provokes the Lord to anger. We see one such example of this anger in verse 34. In his days, Hiel of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundations at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. As God's people entered the promised land, Jericho was the first city they saw. The long shadow of those great, tall, and imposing walls might have made them wonder, how are we going to take this city? How are we going to take this land? But the Lord gave, him, gave them his word that he would deliver Jericho into their hands. And after the Lord himself brought down those walls, he told Joshua to make Israel swear an oath. I'll read it for you. Cursed. Cursed before the Lord be the man who rises and rebuilds this city Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation. And at the cost of his youngest son shall he set up its gates. See how costly sin is. The collapsed walls, you see, they were to serve as a constant reminder to Israel that the Lord always fulfills his word. And should any man ever be so foolish so as to rebuild that wicked city, the death of his sons would serve both as a judgment against him and as a sign to others that the Lord always, in every age, still fulfills his word. Ahab didn't rebuild Jericho. Heel did. And Heel paid the price. And yet it was under Ahab's watch. Whether it was by his command or under his permission doesn't really ultimately matter at the end of the day. The scripture emphasizes that it was in his days, in Ahab's days. And that means it happened under his watch. Ahab is responsible. I'll speak generally to everyone, but especially fathers and those in positions of leadership. You can delegate authority, but you cannot abdicate responsibility. And you never have the right to command or permit sin. Pastors and elders in the church, fathers and husbands in the home, you are responsible for what happens under your rule and under your roof. And you are to make every effort. You are to be faithful in employing every means to encourage personal piety and biblical worship, beginning with your own personal example. Let me conclude with this. The history of Ahab is not good. He was a bad king. He lived against God's word. 
by marrying that pagan princess and worshiping those false gods and allowing that cursed city to be rebuilt. He provoked the Lord to anger. And that anger came suddenly in the appearance of the prophet Elijah. Seemingly out of nowhere, Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe shows up saying, As the Lord, the God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And just like that, there is no dew, there is no rain, there is only drought and famine and the impending prospect of death. They had looked to bow for their prosperity, and the Lord will remind them that blessings come not from Baal, but from the Lord, from His Word. But then the prophet leaves. This is what happens to God's people when their leaders especially do not live by God's Word. The Lord sends judgment, then He withdraws His prophetic Word from the land There is no warning. There is no repent and believe. There is only the curse of God followed by a prophetic departure. This is not the end of the story. But it is the end for now. The Lord leaves His people with this cliffhanger that they might consider their ways. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do not live by bread alone, but by every word of You. You are our God and we are your people and we are in covenant with you and we look to you to teach us to walk according to your word, to help us to repent, to help us to believe, to help us to endeavor to follow after Christ. Lord, we pray for leaders for pastors and elders, for fathers, and for all your people, that we would turn away from our sins, that we would look towards Christ, and that we would endeavor to follow after him. We consider this prophetic departure of your word, and Lord, it is hard for us to receive how you would withdraw so so suddenly from your people. How harsh are your judgments in our eyes, and yet they are just. Lord, grant us much grace and help us to live not against your word, but by every word. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.